0: God's spirit is here. Holy Spirit, we are open to you this morning. Will you come and touch us where we need the touch of your love and your freedom and your power? Amen. So this morning we're starting a new series. We're going to be in John's Gospel for the next few weeks. I'm quite excited about this series. The first half of John's Gospel um, is sometimes called the Book of Signs. Um, If you put the um, sermon PowerPoint up for me first, because I'm going to say a bit and then do the Bible reading, and then start my talk. I'm starting my talk now, really. first half of John's Gospel is sometimes called the Book of Signs, because in the first half of his writing he identifies seven things seven events in jesus's ministry seven things that jesus did that he calls signs and john has he's chosen he's selected particular things that he feels are particularly important to help us understand something about jesus and he's very clear that he hasn't attempted to include everything he's been selective at the end of his gospel he said and jesus also that did many other things that are not written about here. He hasn't tried to include everything. He has chosen particular things, and he's chosen them for a reason. So what is a sign? Well, a sign is something that is pointing you towards something else, a thing that is not just the thing that it is, but it's also an indicator of something else that isn't so easily visible. So if you have a toothache... It's, not, it's painful, but it's not just pain for the sake of pain. Your toothache is a sign. It's telling you something. It's telling you that there's a problem with this tooth and you need to go and see the dentist. A member of my family was talking about a group of friends that he shared his first student house with. And in their first year, there had been a, a boys' flat and a girls' flat on the same landing. And in the second year, some of them... Uh, formed a mixed group to share a house together and he was groaning about how awful the girls were to live with because they were so untidy they never washed up and they left their stuff everywhere and he said this and it stayed with me he said but we should have known the signs were all there when I think about it when we used to go into their flat their flat was really untidy but we just didn't think about it but the signs were there. That's the kind of signs that John is talking about. We can look at the life of Jesus and John's account of him and we can say that the signs are there that tell us what God is like and what his kingdom is like. Um, the BBC showed a picture on the news earlier this week um, of a of a wedding in the Philippines. I don't know if you can see this and if you saw it in the news earlier in the week. So this is a, a wedding in the Philippines. And in the background, there are signs of an erupting volcano. This is the Tal volcano that is doing things at the moment. Then if you put the second picture up, this is it later that night. You can see that things have developed. Now, when a volcano starts behaving in this way, you can either just say, hmm, look at that. There's lots of steam and ash billowing out over there. Isn't that interesting? Or you can say, hmm, look at that steam and ash billowing out of that volcano. I think that might be a sign that something is happening that we can't see. And maybe we need to do something about it. So a sign is something that is significant because it's pointing to something else. It's telling you something else that you haven't seen yet. And we may not realize it until afterwards. You have to know how to read the signs. But it's telling you something more than just the fact that it exists for what it is or that it's happened. And the signs that John chooses are all what we might call miracles. But in John's gospel, Jesus' miracles are never called miracles. They are called signs. And that's an editorial choice that John has made for a reason. Because for John, the miracle itself is not what he wants us to really focus on. The, the, the miracle, the action itself, is always a sign that is pointing to some some really important and deeper truth that he wants us to understand about Jesus and about his kingdom. So the basis for our series, over the next seven weeks, we're going to look at each of the signs in turn in the next few weeks And I want us to understand as we do that, that although each of them is a miracle that Jesus did, actually the main point is not the miracle itself. It's what it tells us about God and his kingdom. There are layers of meaning in each one. And John doesn't want us to just see what's on the surface. We're supposed to dig deeper and see the deeper truth that Jesus is revealing by this action. So with that introduction then, we're going to turn now to our passage for today. We're going to look at the first of John's signs, and that is in John chapter 2. We're going to read John chapter 2 verses. Hopefully that will come up on the screen if you can manage it. So on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial wash, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are here this morning in your presence to worship you and to seek you. And so now, as we encounter this, your written word, I pray that we would encounter Jesus, who is the living word, in our hearts, in a living way, that changes us. Give us a new understanding, we pray, of him and of your love for us. Come and speak to us, we pray. Amen. So, I think one reason why I find this story so appealing is because it's so domestic. I think it's one of the most domestic settings that we ever see Jesus in. He's here with his mum. Um, and probably other members of his extended family as well, aunts and uncles and cousins and people from his village, and they've all gathered for this wedding party. You know the kind of thing. We have family weddings. You have the invitation on the mantelpiece for a few months, and if you're a woman, you probably spend quite some time shopping for your outfit or at least thinking about what you're going to wear, shoes, bag, hat, whole thing. And then on the day, there's a certain format to what happens, Bride's entrance, the marriage ceremony, the bride and groom exit, confetti, several hours of photographs. And then later on there'll be lots of food and drinking, some humorous and emotional speeches about what wonderful people they both are. Uh, And then maybe a barn dance or a Kaylee party. Or for some it's a disco, and maybe your cousin ends up doing karaoke, not planned. Granddad does the macarena. Maybe there's a conga line led by the bride. It's a party. It's full of joy and fun and hope and optimism. And this wedding story, I think, is maybe the only glimpse we get of Jesus having a family life and joining in with those kinds of family moments and celebrations. And I find that really appealing. At a Jewish wedding, everyone would turn up. So not just the extended family, but everyone from the whole village would be there and from all the other villages in the surrounding countryside as well. There would be feasting during the day. And then in the evening, the father would take his daughter around the village and people would follow them. They would gather people up and this growing procession would eventually end up outside the house of the groom, And the ceremony would take place there on the doorstep. And then the bride and the groom would parade again through the village with everyone following them like a carnival parade, laughing and singing and dancing and joking. And and then the feasting and the drinking and the partying would last about seven days from there. These were real joyous parties full of life and full of fun. And Jesus is there. But then partway through, the wine runs out. And that would be a social disaster. It should never happen. It's the biggest faux pas, social faux pas that you can imagine for the groom and his family who were responsible for this. Because in this culture, hospitality was sacred. And to run out of supplies, to fail in the traditional hospitality was about the biggest public shame possible in a culture that is based on honour and shame. And so this wedding would always be remembered with shame as the one where the wine ran out. And so the, on, on the surface, the, this story is that the wine runs out and Jesus provides some more. Mary asks him to help, and he does. And the actual changing of the water is passed over so quickly that if you blink, you'll miss it. And that's because, for John, that is not the main thing. He doesn't want us to focus on that, he, on physically the water becoming wine. He wants to draw our eye away from that and wow. onto what is the meaning behind it. Because this is a sign. It's a miraculous, supernatural thing that Jesus did, but it's much more than that as well. It's not a conjuring trick. It's not done to impress people or to entertain people. Actually, this one is quite private. It's not done in front of a crowd. There may be lots of guests at this wedding, but the passage says that only the servants and the disciples actually knew anything about what Jesus had done. He doesn't want to detract attention from the wedding couple whose day this is. So he does it with barely anyone noticing. Mary asks him to help and then she leaves it to him. She doesn't try to tell him what to do. She just asks him to do something, to sort it out. And what he tells the servants to do would have seemed really outlandish really really outlandish so there were these six stone jars standing there and it says they were used for ceremonial washing and each jar could hold 20 to 30 gallons and I want us to understand two things about these jars which will help us to unlock the deeper truth here and the first thing is that in a hot and dry climate like this one water was precious And no one would ever, ever use anything like that amount for normal use, even at a wedding where there are lots of guests. To ask the servants to refill the jars, all six of them, right to the brim, at this stage of the party would have seemed really bizarre. But Mary has said, do whatever he tells you. And so they do. And the second thing I want us to understand about these jars is that it says that they were for ceremonial washing. So the Old Testament law said that people had to wash their hands and their feet before they could come to God to pray, worship. But what had happened is the Pharisees had expanded that. They just loved to expand the rules and create more rules. And so now the full requirement for washing that they required before you could come to worship, was at a ridiculous level, way more than what the law had actually originally said. And the Pharisees loved anything that was public and showy. And so they loved lots of ceremonial washing because it made them look important. And so they didn't just wash to get their hands and feet clean. They would wash over and over again in the showiest way possible to demonstrate their so-called cleanliness and purity, and therefore how worthy they were to come before God. And it's because of that, that Jesus' use of these jars is very significant. He takes the water in these washing jars, which represents the establishment's requirement for making yourself acceptable to God. And it would be pure water, which may have been easily accessible to the rich, but it certainly wasn't easily accessible for the poor. They would have had to use it much more sparingly. Jesus takes that water and he replaces it with a symbol of his own. And he's saying, coming to God isn't going to be about this anymore. It's not going to be about how many times you wash yourself. It isn't going to be about all the rules and regulations that the establishment want to put on you. That's not what God is about. Coming to God is going to be about me and what I'm going to give you. Not water for washing, but wine for celebration. This is a story of abundance. The party was already partway through, and they wouldn't have needed anywhere near this much. And it's for everyone. Normally, the important guests would be served the best wine, and everybody else would get the cheap stuff. But the head steward, when he tastes it, he says to the bridegroom, what are you doing? This wine is better than the best wine that you served earlier on. Why are you only bringing this out now? But now all the guests will get this wine. Everyone will get to share this wine. Jesus' wine is the best and it's for everyone. It's not limited or restricted. It is abundant and overflowing. The miracle itself is not the point. It's a sign. John, in his gospel, has already introduced who Jesus is. In the first part of chapter 1 of John's gospel, in the prologue, he introduces Jesus in a very unique way, like nobody else does. Let's read some of those verses from John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is Jesus. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And without him, not one thing came into being. And the word became flesh and lived among us, full of grace and truth. The law indeed was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only son, who is close to the father's heart, who has made him known. So he is God. He was with God in the beginning. He always was and always will be God. He created as God everything in creation. And then he comes to us here. He puts on flesh and blood and he comes and lives in our neighborhood. And he came to show us grace. He came to show us God. Jesus shows us God because he is God. And the law was good in its day, says John, but now we have Jesus and he is full of grace and truth. The word grace only appears four times in the whole of John's gospel and all four of those are in the first 18 verses, the prologue. And the commentator Caroline Lewis links this idea of incarnation and grace. And she says that, although some people would say that in that prologue, John has taken a pre-existing hymn and he's borrowed it and he's inserted something into his writing, he's quoted it. She says, what if it's not that? What if we take the incarnation seriously and suggest that once the word becomes flesh, The rest of the gospel shows you what grace tastes like, looks like, smells like, sounds like, and feels like. Jesus came to show us what God is like. And what she's saying here is that if Jesus, the word in human form, if he is God in the shape of a person and he is full of grace and truth, then everything that he does and everything that he is is showing us what God is like and that's why he came. No one has ever seen God, John said. It's only through looking at Jesus who has seen him and who knows him that we can know what God is like. If you want to know what God is like, you need to look at Jesus. And so Jesus, God who has come in person, in human form, has come to get rid of the belief that we have to meet certain standards, that we have to be good enough, that we have to be constantly striving to earn his goodwill that we have to wash enough. And that it's not the Pharisees' job or our job to put barriers and obstacles in people's way that they have to get over in order to be good enough to come to God. It's not our job. In this wedding story, Jesus is giving a sign. A sign like a toothache is a sign A sign like girls having an untidy flat is a sign. A sign like a volcano with clouds of steam and ash coming out of it is a sign. It's telling us something. The turning of the water into wine is not the main thing that we're supposed to see. It's his abundant grace. What Jesus does here is more than just saving the day socially At a family wedding, he's painting a picture of abundance, the abundance of God's grace. The amount in those jars is extraordinary. We have to ask ourselves, why did Jesus make so much wine? They wouldn't have needed nearly that amount. One jar would probably have been plenty Why did he make so much? Because it's a sign. We're meant to notice it and it's meant to tell us something important about God. He's had a simple request for helping to provide some more wine. He provides over 100 gallons, way more than was needed, was asked for. And is showing us with a practical demonstration, he's showing us what the free outpouring of God's grace and generosity look like. And what does that free, generous grace taste like and feel like? Well, it's not like cheap plonk that's a bit rough around the edges it is fine wine the best and maybe it tastes all the finer because you were expecting a small glass of the cheap stuff and the cheap stuff would have done and it's not reserved just for the vips this wine is for everyone without restrictions there are no tests that have to be passed. There are no criteria to fulfill. There are no insiders and outsiders in the kingdom of God. The wine, this wine that is the abundant grace of his kingdom, is for everyone. It's deliberately not reserved for only certain guests. This was radical stuff for the people at this time. This was worlds away from everything they had been taught. Fascinatingly, Jesus isn't teaching it. He's not preaching a sermon about grace and abundance. He just does it quietly and unobserved, and he doesn't explain the significance of what he's done. But John, in, in his reflecting and pondering later on, John has seen the significance of it and he's chosen it as his first sign because he wants us to see it as well. So what about us? What does this mean for us in our lives? Well, I think I want to ask, have you experienced in your life this kind of grace? kind of grace that jesus is showing here do you know what it means to realize that you get to share in everything that he offers freely generously abundantly no matter who you are or what you've done have you tasted this kind of wine Or have you been kind of stuck in a place where God feels like a judge who's judging you all the time on whether you make the grade, whether you meet the standard, that if you fail, that's it, you're out? And that God's finest wine is not for you. It can't be for you because you failed. And you don't deserve it. That's not the God that Jesus shows us. That's not how he wants us to live. God doesn't divide us into the deserving and the undeserving. And because he doesn't, neither should we. We have Jesus in us. We have the Holy Spirit. And actually what God wants is for us to be set free of that burden of failure. And to just let the power of the Holy Spirit be let loose in us. You need to release yourself from, from that weight of condemnation and failure that we all struggle with at times. Or the view of other people maybe that that make you feel that you're not good enough. Those voices real or imagined that condemn and bring you down for you to fully become the you that he wants you to be you need to release yourself from that nagging burden that I just can't make the grade, I can't make the requirement you don't have to because it's about grace grace And the thing about grace is that it's not about what you've got in you. It's about what is poured into you. And what gets poured into you is free. It's from God. All it takes is a humble heart. We all have this sense that we are not enough I am not enough. I'm going to fail and I'm going to keep on failing because the resources that I have inside myself are just not enough. And it's true. But it's not about that. It's not about what you've got inside you. It's about what God pours into you. His grace that he pours into you. On your own, you can never be enough. But his grace is always more than enough, way more than we could ever imagine. And so where in your life, in your perception of yourself, do you really need to experience that? Where in your life just at the moment in all that is happening where would you like to experience this outpouring of God's abundant grace and what might you need to do for that to happen or perhaps there are places in your life where you're feeling like the wine has run out and it happens it's it's a reality for all of us at times. Maybe life hasn't worked out as you thought. Maybe things have happened that aren't what you would choose. Maybe you feel at the mercy of things that you can't control in your life. Maybe you're feeling spiritually dry, dried up, just doesn't feel the same anymore. But Jesus wants you to know if that's you this morning that he is the provider of the wine and he can provide it in abundance. He's in the business of transforming things. It's what he does. And he wants to take the empty wine bottle of your life and he wants to fill it to overflowing with something that is beautiful and remarkable. Not the cheap stuff, but the best. So do you have an empty cup that you want to bring to him this morning? Bring it. He's in the business of transforming things. And what about us as a church family, maybe feeling like the wine has run out But Jesus says, I am the provider of the wine. And he's here now. He's part of this family gathering that we are now, as he was at that wedding. And so in what way as a church family would we like to experience the abundance of God's grace, the outpouring of his blessing on us, not in a limited way, In a scarce way, but in an abundant way. And I don't think it's about numbers. I don't think it's about seeing more people in church. We need to get past that kind of thinking because God isn't really all that interested in numbers. And if numbers is where we think the blessing comes from, then we're going to miss out. I think this is about depth of faith. Depth of relationship with him deeper, and stronger. This is the church that we are now, and God wants to bless it. He wants to pour out his abundant blessing. So for us as a church now, for who and what we are now, where, where do we need to experience God's abundant grace? His transforming grace poured out on us. And what might we need to do to make that happen? Let's pray. Lord, we want to experience that kind of grace, that kind of abundance in our lives so will you set us free from everything that gets in the way that bogs us down and holds us back will you open our hearts and minds so that we can truly see you as you are the god of abundant mercy grace and blessing Help us to see that this is what you are like. And may your free and generous and abundant grace flow in our hearts. Come and pour it on us, we pray. We're here waiting for you now. In Jesus' name, we offer ourselves. Amen.